Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. The words will be on the screen. Um, I'll read and we'll continue as we work through this uh, book. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. And it reads like this. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down and asked him for something. What do you want, he asked her. Promise, she said, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, uh, how many of y'all have moms that would do that for you? My word. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We're able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd demanded that they keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus stopped, called them and said, hear this same thing. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, open our eyes. Moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately, they could see, and don't miss this, and they followed him. Let's pray. Um, Our Father, as we come to your word, we always come as an act of faith, Lord. We know that your truth lies in here. We know that you said that you speak uh, through your word, and sometimes we just feel like you are silent, God. So we ask that you would speak to us. Fill us with a greater sense of hope than what we came into these doors with so that we can leave and fill others with that same hope. We ask that you would do this for us so we can serve others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take your seats? No man is truly great who is great only in his lifetime. The test of greatness is the page of history. I think what William Hazlitt was trying to get at um, is that the real test of greatness isn't seen in what somebody does while they're here on this earth. The real test of greatness is seen when other people talk about what they've done when they leave this earth. Greatness inspires. The truly great often live longer than they have breaths on this earth. Um, I know it's been world news, but last week, uh, Kobe Bryant, along with eight other people, tragically uh, passed on a helicopter, and it was a thing that shook so many of us, not because we had an intimate relationship with Kobe, uh, but what you learn is that you don't have to have an intimate relationship with somebody to be deeply impacted by them. One of the reasons why it shook so many of us was that even though we didn't know him, 
our lives in some sense, or my life in some sense, has, has, has been shaped by this one man's pursuit of greatness. So for 20 years, as somebody who loved to play ball, to be able to watch somebody who gave their life to mastering this craft and to just hear, that was the way that he attacked life. And, and, and so to just see that, and in every facet of my life, just inspired and shaped to work hard to try to be the best that I could be. Greatness is like a flame, and we're drawn to it so much so that when somebody that we look up to or our hero passes, it causes you and I to reevaluate the way that we live our lives. And we start to think, all right, there's so many things that I was scared of, so many things I was fearful of, I was afraid of failure, but in light of seeing how short life is, I'm going to get up and I'm going to pursue greatness. But then uh, what we quickly find out is uh, is although greatness is a good goal, Uh, Just because you have the right destination, uh, it doesn't mean you have the right directions. Just because you know where you want to go, it doesn't mean that you know how to get there. That what we've often seen is that people who find themselves really achieving some kind of greatness in this life, have paid a price for it, that when they're on their deathbed or when memoirs or biographies are written about them later, guys like Steve Jobs or other folks that have done great things, you see that they've had this greatness at the cost of their families, the cost of their peace. And often the pursuit of greatness travels down these paths that are self-centered and self-serving. So we read about the end of their lives and we say, if that's what it costs them, then I don't want that, I don't want what they had. And we think that pursuing greatness is not a good goal and we settle for mediocrity. Mediocrity isn't ideal. God didn't create you for that. God made us all for greatness. And hear this, uh, once you get a taste of greatness, it's hard to go back. So the question is, where do we go? If the pursuit of greatness has often been hijacked, here's what I want you to know. We don't need a new goal. What we need is a new guide. Somebody to lead us. And this is what we find here in Matthew chapter 20 as Jesus is on his way to the cross and he talks about his death. He's going to pull the disciples aside and give them the right directions to get to greatness. Start here with me in verse 17, right? And what we see is Jesus continuing to move forward even in spite of opposition getting ready to come his way. He says this, while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way uh, here's what I love about Jesus even on his way to his death he is not overly concerned with himself but with serving others he's getting ready to die and he has enough time to step aside and to give the 12 a master class on life and how to live so he steps aside and he talks to them and he says this look see we are going up to Jerusalem the son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked flogged and crucified and on the third day he will be raised we've talked about this in the weeks before but I want you to hear this uh If you're ever going to move forward in this life through the opposition that is bound to come your way, you have to keep the end in mind. Jesus is going to talk about his death, but like everywhere else in the Gospel of Matthew and everywhere else in the Bible, Jesus is never going to mention his death 
without in the same sentence mentioning his resurrection. That he wants us to see and to know that death is not his destination. It is a detour. Resurrection and glory is the thing in his future. But I want you to see what takes place here. Three times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about his death and the fact that he'll be raised. Here on the third time, he goes into more specificity than anywhere else. So the first time, it's just, y'all, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And I'm going to die and raise. The next time is, y'all, I'll be killed, but I'll die and raise. Here, what he does is he goes into depth. I'm going to be handed over to the uh, chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn me. Then they'll hand me over to the Gentiles and they'll mock me and they'll beat me and he's going to use this word for the first time and I'll be crucified. So it's not just a death, it is the most shameful death. And he goes into this specificity. He's going to use this word, look, see the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Uh, Jesus just doesn't talk about himself in the third person to overinflate his importance. What he's going to do is he's going to import this term from Daniel chapter 7, and I want you to read it. It says right here, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of days and was escorted before him. Look at this. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So when he says, Son of man, this is what they think of, and he says, Look, the person with all power, with all dominion, is going to die the most pitiful of deaths. It's already a shock to their framework for how they understand how justice in life is supposed to work. But Jesus brings all of this up here, this, to show that he is not blindsided. Death and suffering is not an accident Ever, it always comes by appointment. And in this way, as he gives them this bad news, we realize that bad news is really good news if it comes beforehand. If you were to leave here and turn on the news and you were to get the news that a tornado was going to come through Atlanta on Friday, is that bad news or good news? A tornado is always bad news. But the fact that the bad news comes before says, I want to give you this news so that you know that the tornado doesn't have to take your life. Jesus is saying, I want to give you this news beforehand so that you would know that it doesn't have to cost you your life. The good news is that death should be our destination. Death should be in our future, but because the Son of Man, the one with all glory and power, is going to embrace the most pitiful death for you and I, for every one of us that puts our trust in him the way that you would put your trust and confidence in a weather report, you can sit and rejoice now that death is not your destiny. It is not in your future. Glory is in your future. Glory is on the weather report. So do you know what that does? It doesn't exempt you from hard times. It just prepares you to look past them. Or to look through them. They're still here. But as we keep the end in mind, you and I can move forward. The disciples don't have their head down and neither should you. Here in this text, they're finally starting to understand that Jesus is on his way to glory because they have the end in mind. But I want you to hear this. Um, having the end in mind is a good thing. Having only the end in mind is a very, very bad thing because it distracts you from the journey that you have to take. 
The first time Jesus predicts his death, the disciples reject it and Jesus has to rebuke them. The second time he predicts his death, the disciples are distressed and Jesus has to encourage them. The third time he predicts his death, they're distracted because they look just at the end. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons appear or approach him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? We're able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit on my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Let me help you see what goes on real quick. Very first thing, they're on their way to the cross. They hear glory is in their future. They say, great, we want to make sure that we get the positions of honor. James and John likely already saw Peter try to rebuke Christ, and he got the get behind me Satan. So what they say is, let's send our moms there, because Jesus ain't going to talk to moms like that. So their mom comes up. He says, what do you want from me? How many of y'all would like to hear those words? For God himself to say, what do you want? And what she asks for, or what they ask for through her, is we want that glory. We want that honor. They ask for this blank check. Jesus is on the come up, and they say, let me hold something, Jesus. We want to sit at your right and your left, right? What is that? Back in the day, you know, the king would have somebody or their right or their left. What they're trying to say is, Jesus, uh, when you post pictures on IG, we want to make sure that we're in your profile picture. So that when people see you, they think of us. What they want is this position of honor. They forget his first words that the path of glory goes through the grave. It doesn't jump over the grave. The other disciples are angered by it. They're angry, not because James and John have done something wrong. They're angry because they beat them to the punch. It's like when Richard makes that pound cake and he only has one left, and somebody else asks for it before you do, you're angered because they get, or you think that they're going to get what you want. Jesus tells him, hey, can you drink from this cup that I drink? And that cup is him saying, I'm going to suffer to get this glory. Are you ready to do this? And I want you to hear this. They say, we're ready. Listen, everybody is willing to endure hardship for what they want. So I don't think that they were just ignorant. They've heard him say, I'm going to die. So I think that they're ready, but they, they want this greatness. And he's going to go on and say, well, you will. But this convo of who sits at, the, at, at, at my right and my left is a non-starter. And so when he says it's not mine to give, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know. But based on God's kingdom economics, where the last is first and the first will be last, he's saying the people that sit on my right and left are probably going to be people that you've never heard about. They're probably going to be those that aren't going to have a biography written about them. Their good works are going to be known in glory. Look at verse 25. Look at what Jesus does. When people step out of turn or speak out of turn, do you know what you and I tend to do? We tend to put them back in their place. We tend to tell them that they are wrong. But look at this. Jesus never, and I want you to hear this, he does not condemn their desire for greatness. He redirects it. He says, no, no, you were made for greatness. You weren't made for mediocrity. 
But you're never going to get there if you go like this. 25. Jesus called them and said, no, I just want to stop here. Yo, this is somebody that is on his way to his death, surrounded by people who three and a half years later still don't get it. And he's constantly looking for teachable moments. It would do all of us a service to remember that you do not need a stage or a platform or a pulpit to impact people throughout all of your life, especially at the most inconvenient times. Those are the greatest times for you to teach and share and infuse all of this goodness. And he starts here and he says this. He doesn't just tell them that they're wrong. It's positive reinforcement. He redirects them. And the very first thing that he says is this. Look, not this way. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants. It must not be like that among you. What he's not saying is that Gentiles got it wrong. Jews have, have, have it right. This is not a racial or an ethnic distinction. What he's trying to bring out is this day where the Jews are oppressed by the Gentiles. Gentiles are those who are ruling who don't themselves have a ruler. They sit on top of the totopole. And what he's saying is in the world when people get great they become tyrants. Lord Acton says it like this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. There's something about having absolute power. There's something about having ships and gunpowder and forces that would make people feel like they could rule somebody. Frederick Douglass in his book, The Life of a Narrative of Fred, or the uh, Narrative of, of the Life of Frederick Douglass writes this. He writes about uh, this one lady that he thought was a nice lady until she got a slave. And he said, it wasn't just the slave that changed. It was her. Something about having that kind of unchecked power. People use it to make life easier for them as they make it hard on people. We see that same thing in sweatshops all over the world. To make profit or to buy a sweater for $15. We don't care what it costs somebody else. You've seen it in your own life. You remember what it's like to grow up, to be playing outside, and your mom and dad call you in, and you say, what do you want? And they say, can you get me the remote? <laughs> and you say, that remote is right by you. And you vow, I'm never going to do that to my kids. And then you get kids. And my, oh my, how the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Right? I'm four years away from having breakfast in bed, right? I'm, I'm, I'm four birthdays from there. There's, there's nothing like having that power. And what he's saying is when people are at the top, the way that they use their power, greatness is determined by how many servants that they have. And Jesus is saying, now, for those of us that are Christian, it is a different category altogether. There's an otherworldly nature of God's kingdom. Verse 26, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. He's saying, I affirm in you your desire for greatness, but if you go the way that the world goes, you're never going to get there. The only way to get greatness is not to gain, but it is to give. And he is going to use these words servant and slave very intentionally because when you are a servant and a slave, 
you do not clock into work and clock out. Your entire life is shaped, governed, and defined in how you relate to somebody else. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is that greatness isn't measured by your servants, but by your service. Or if I could put it more simply, and I want you to hear this, for the Christian, greatness is found in the gutter. Nobody, nobody thinks or lives this way. It is not just countercultural; it is otherworldly. So in order to really live like this, you have to take it by faith. But I want you to hear this. Jesus is pulling them aside, and he's telling, for him to say greatness is found in the gutter is essentially him giving them a treasure map. And I want you to hear this. Nobody, and I mean nobody, that is confident that they actually have a map to buried treasure feels like digging a hole and getting dirt on them is beneath them. They are eager to get dirty, to get in the gutter and to serve because they know greatness is not displayed somewhere. It's at the bottom of this gutter. And only people that take it by faith live like this. And I want you to hear this. Look, this is basic, ordinary Christianity. And for most of you, I'm likely going to tell you a story that is fantastic and great and a story that you have never heard before. In 260 AD, across the Roman Empire, there was epidemics that would just wipe out people. So in some towns, a third of the population would be wiped out by the disease. And people would flee like crazy. Here's a section of a letter that a guy by the name of Dionysius, who was a bishop in Alexandria, wrote uh, to a church on Easter. It's from this book, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. The words will be here on the screen. It says this. During the great epidemic, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their very need and ministering to them in Christ. Many in nursing and curing others, hear this, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The pagans behaved in a very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. A decaying society was preserved by Christians who were convinced that greatness was found in the gutter. And you talk about applying this scripture. For some, it actually cost them their very lives. And just by a show of hands, raise your hand if this was the first time that you ever heard that. Most of the room. You would say things like, why isn't this front page news? Why aren't there more things like this? Do you know why there aren't more things like this? Because there are more things like this. This really doesn't make the front page of what's come across your desk because you look across history and there are thousands and millions of examples of Christians that have done the exact same thing. Because it's so ordinary and basic to what it means to be a Christian, to give your life for somebody else's. That this is the comp, this is 
common. Look, but this is what Atlanta needs. This is what our community needs. It needs a group of people who at first glance, it's man in 2020, I don't know what took place, but something about those people at Cornerstone changed. And it's front page news to them. But then by 2021, it's on the inside pages because so often they find People that set aside the things that they want to do to go and help a middle school here from being turned into a charter school. That if it is turned into a charter school, the people that are hurt and affected are not the children that live at home with both a mom and a dad whose dad makes enough discretionary income for the mom to stay at home and drive their kids to school when they miss the bus. The kids that are affected are the ones who don't have a dad in the home or dad and mom both have to work because they don't have the income required for one to stay at home. And if they miss the bus, they can't just walk to the school that's across the street if they didn't, uh, didn't get in. They either have to traverse MARTA or stay at home. And let's not talk about some of the other issues that may make it impossible or hard to get up if you're spending all night in a house working through things that no 12-year-old should have to work through. Now, they don't get to go to school, and when they don't go to school, they're truant. And when they're truant, the cycle goes on and on and on, and all of that could have been averted. That decaying system could have been averted by a group of people who say greatness is found in the gutter. So when we talk about being able to serve at this school, the top floor of that building is packed with people. That's just an example. It should be the common way of life. Our experience with Christianity probably hasn't been that. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you may say, well, John, if I saw a bunch of people like that, maybe I would be a Christian. But I haven't. When I think of Christianity, I think of all the dysfunction that makes the front pages. I think of the history of race-based slavery and oppression. I think of the folks who come up and leave communities in the droves. I think of people who always prioritize safety over service. You may not be a Christian because you say, when I think of Christian, I think of people who make all their life decisions through the same grid that I do, except for what they do on Sunday morning. And what I just want to tell you is, um, if you're here and that's you, I, that's not Christianity. Christianity is this right here. It is a pursuit of greatness that finds itself in the gutter. Verse 28. He says, look, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, as Jesus talks about this way of life, and he redirects us towards service and not getting servants, that cure highlights the real problem. That cure diagnoses what's really wrong in Jesus correcting their direction, he surfaces their true problem. And that problem is self-centeredness. And I want you to hear this, look. Self-centeredness 
is not just a bad ideology. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. It is making the center of your universe something other than God. If you want to know what your God is, all you have to do is pull up a list of the decisions that you've made and see where is there a conflict? Where do I find myself saying, I think I should do this, but I want to do this. And the reason why one wins out, that's fueled completely by your God. What you serve, what you live for. God is the center. Ideas can be fixed with a nice civil conversation. You've you've got a wrong one, I'll fix it with the right one. You think LeBron is the GOAT, I'll say, no, Jordan is the And here's why we can talk and be civil. Idols are not fixed with civil conversations. Idols are only solved through violence. The idol has to die. It is a painful process. Listen, if your idol is beauty, if you want to be great in beauty, then you'll spend your time living for compliments for people. If you want to be great in admiration, if that's what you think, fills you, you'll spend your life, hear this, serving. You'll spend your life trying to apply this and to say, oh, I'll give my life and serve in a school and at the soup kitchen and here and I'll march and you'll give your life to do all of those things. Yeah, Drink the cup? Of course I'll drink the cup. But only to get what you really want. So even in serving, we see how self-centered we are. And as we do that, we show that the God that we serve that is rooted in ourself is a bad God. Do you know why it's a bad God? Because it needs to be filled by something. And a true God, I want you to hear this, has no needs. A God that needs servants is not just a bad God, it's a false God. When the Bible talks about God and service, more often than not, it talks about God's service to humanity than humanity's service to God. If we created an album of all of God's needs, it would be a short one. That would be a blank disc. If you wrote a book of all of God's needs, it would have nothing but blank pages. You would love to go grocery shopping for God because it would be a quick trip. God doesn't need shelter like you and I do because he lives above the rain clouds. God has no needs, which means this, God doesn't barter with people. So all the prayers that we pray about, God, if I do this, then you'll do this. God, I can't believe that I did this and you didn't do this. That's because God's saying, well, I I didn't need you to do that. How does that make you feel? Being involved in a relationship with somebody that doesn't need anything. It can make you feel devalued. Ask any mom that sends her kids off to college, right? So my mom sent me off to school, um, and she would always call to check in, hey, how, how, how are things going? You know, I'd come home, and she's like, hey, do you need anything? And I'm like, no, m- mom, I'm, I'm good, right? But she'd constantly try to serve because she feels like I need stuff, or her place in, in my life was to serve, but now I don't need her in the same way, so I have to just sit and say, Mom, I'm grateful for all that you've done, uh, but I've learned how to stay alive. Thanks to you, 
but I, but I don't need your help in that anymore. And she gets to a place where she feels like, well, if you don't need me like that, then what do we, what do we have? That's how some of us feel about God. Well, God, if you don't need me to serve you or to do all these works for you, what do we have? We don't know how to exist in relationship with God, in intimacy, because we're too busy thinking that he needs us for ministry. And that bad posture of you carrying this weight that you were never ready to carry. Here's where the violence comes in. Idols are never just talked down off of their throne. They have to be removed violently. The desires that sit in your heart that are convinced that what you want out of life is the best thing for you, it's not going to come down easy. It has to be brutally assaulted, violently taken down. Desires are never erased. They are displaced. Something better sits in its place and forces it out. And that's what the Lord Jesus came to do. Verse 28, right? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Jesus embodies what he tells you and I to practice. He's not asking you and I to do something that he himself has not done. He shows that it's incorrect for you and I to spend our lives trying to live like a God that creates this space where people and minions give us their adulation, give us their admiration and re re respect because even God doesn't just do that. Do you know what God does? He climbs off of his throne. Greatness inspires people, right? But here's the dark side of it. Greatness also introduces this concept of envy. So it's one thing to say, man, they're great. I want to be like them. But that quickly turns into, they're great. I want to be them. I want to replace them. And that's what every human heart has done when it comes to God. God is great. I want to be like him. He created us like him. Satan comes in and says, here's one better. You can be him. You can have all the stuff that he has. And while the disciples are concerned about trading places with Jesus so that his profile picture always includes theirs, Jesus is concerned about switching places with them and with us. They want to sit in a place or seats of glory that they have not earned. Jesus chooses to come into the world and take the fate that you and I have earned. As he's crucified on the cross for being, hear this, a mere human who tried to take the place of God in the hearts and minds of people. Jesus literally took our fate on the cross. They want to sit at his right and the left. They want to be in the periphery of honor. Do you know what the closing scene is of Jesus' life on earth? He comes to be in the center of shame. They want to sit on thrones on the outside of God, but God himself comes and is crucified in between two criminals on a cross facing the most shameful death. While we're trying to be him and doing a terrible job at being God, by the way, Jesus comes to this earth and he becomes us. 
and does a better job at being us than we did, and then takes the fate that we should have earned, and he raises from the dead to show you and I that since he was successful and his death counted as ours, that his life will be ours as well. And that's how you and I get to this end of the story where we look and are reminded that glory is in our future, not because of what we've done or how we've served, but because of who has served us. Not because of our ability to be like him or to be him, but because of his willingness to be us. A God who is self-sufficient makes it his daily ambition to serve others. And what you and I see is that, y'all, this, it is this gospel truth that changes us because we realize, hear this, look, service is not an obligation. As long as you feel like service is an obligation, something that I must do, uh, your guilt will work as much as gas on a campfire works. It'll spring up and you'll serve, but you'll burn out quickly, unable to relight that flame to the same place. That's if service is an obligation. But if you are full, if you are reminded that you are completely full, that God in Christ has done what you and I can't do, then that leads you and I to worship. And as we worship, what we find out is that out of this fullness of what God has done from us comes this freedom. We are free from the captivity that comes from being wrapped up in ourselves. It's been said there's, there's no smaller package than a man that's wrapped up in himself. When Jesus says, I've come here to be a ransom for the many, ransom is not just referring to the price, but the concept of setting captives free. And that's what Jesus has done. He set you and I free from feeling as if fullness comes from people telling us how pretty we are. He set us free from thinking fullness comes from people admiring the type of car that we drive, the clothes that we wear, the house that we live in. He set us free from all of that. And once you're free from all of that, do you know what you quickly find out? You're free to serve. Service is an outcome. It's not an obligation. It's just what spills out. Worship is an outcome. That you don't read your Bible or pray to serve God as if God is up there empty unless people read their Bible and pray. Do you know why you read your Bible and pray? To remind yourself of the fullness that the God of the universe has provided to you in his son. Do you know why we repent of our sin? Not because we have our head in between, our, 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 our tails in between our legs and we're sad and full of sorrow. God, I can't believe that I messed up again. You expected more from me. But like Psalm 32, repentance and joy are intimately tied. We repent because we say, God, I forgot how full you left me. And I want to experience your smile. Would you remind me? Would you fill me up? And then as he fills us up, as he makes us whole, do you know what you and I are free to do? Serve. Look at verse 32. Jesus stopped, called them, and said, what do you want me to do for you? Same question, but to two blind men who knew their need. They cried out for mercy. Lord, they said to him, open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes immediately. Look, they could see, and I want you to hear this, and they followed him. What you have are these two blind men who haven't seen themselves in so long. Jesus heals them, 
And what they don't do is they don't go looking for a mirror. They, they aren't self-centered. They use their eyes to follow Jesus. And I want you to hear this. All the cool stuff is done. Jesus ain't going to feed 5,000. He's not going to transfigure. He's done walking on water. All of that stuff. Do you know all that's left? Is the cross. Is his brutal death. But after that brutal death, do you know what they are going to see? His glorious resurrection. And what they're going to say is, it's absolutely worth it. In our fullness, you and I find freedom. Freedom to serve. Here's my closing exhortation. Coretta Scott King, somebody who knew uh, uh, the price that service costs, said this. The greatness of a community is most accurately measured by the compassionate actions of its members. I pray that God would make us a community like that. Not that we would be overly busy doing stuff just to do stuff, but that we would be so full in Christ, having all of our needs met, that we would be people who are observant. So in a community full of needs, excuse me, in a church full of needs, don't just think because people smile at the meet and greet that they're okay. What you and I see is ample opportunity to display the greatness of God in the decaying world all around us. No man is truly great who is great only in his lifetime. The test of greatness is the page of history. And those of us in here who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus have been promised eternity. We have a great incentive to serve and we have a great opportunity to do so. Let's make the most of the time we have left. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the way that you transform us, you change us, you shape us. Father, give us grace to be those that are utterly full and when we feel empty, I pray that we would run back to you uh, instead of these broken glasses or cups that we tend to drink out of. Would you remind us that you are a better God than we are? Would you remind us of the freedom that comes from fully following you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.